Hi, and welcome to the Book of Medora, the podcast where we explain Zelda lore. I'm Crystal, and with me today is Cameron. Hi, that'd be me. Cameron, what are you going to explain about Zelda lore for us today? Well, we don't want to get too deep into the particulars of the lore as it interconnects between the games. So I was thinking that we could start off talking about the lore of Breath of the Wild, just in the sense of outlining the events as they happen. Since Breath of the Wild is on many people's minds and, well, interacting with that narrative is really fresh in mine, it's a relatively easy subject for me to get into. So basically the idea here is that we're just going to be starting from the beginning of Breath of the Wild, not the place where the game begins, but rather where the narrative begins. Where's that? Many, many, many thousands of years before we ever pick up a controller. The interesting thing about Breath of the Wild is that it's sort of the final act, almost the denouement of a much larger story. And the idea here is that I'm going to be presenting the larger story in more or less chronological order. To start with, the idea behind Breath of the Wild is sort of rooted in the conflict that surrounds the kingdom that it takes place in. It takes place in a magical kingdom called Hyrule. And the best way to understand Hyrule is that it is always at war, or periodically at war, with an evil creature called Ganon. The Calamity Ganon. Yes, the Calamity Ganon. Not named that always in the series. In this particular instance, he's called the Calamity because in Breath of the Wild, he's treated as sort of like a really malignant natural disaster. And also, it just sounds really goofy when you call him Calamity Ganon, but we like to pretend otherwise. Good name. Yeah. So where did he originally come from? That's actually never touched on in Breath of the Wild. The idea behind Calamity Ganon as presented in this one particular instance is that he is a primordial evil who existed before history was recorded. Now, that's not strictly true. We know from other games in the series that he does have an origin as a particular man, Ganondorf, and further back from that, there's a bunch of other lore that ties into other games. But for the purpose of this story, the Calamity Ganon has existed for so long that no one can remember or even tell stories about a time before the Calamity. One might say that the history of the royal family of Hyrule is the history of the Calamity Ganon. Yeah, that's the famous line that's quoted most often from the trailer, I suppose. And that is true, that the main thing about Ganon is that it exists in an adversarial capacity to the royal family of Hyrule, because Hyrule is ruled over by a family that has a sort of matrilineal connection to its patron goddess, Hylia, from whom the kingdom's name is derived. The whole thing about Ganon is that it sort of exists in opposition to Hylia, and every conflict that plays out from that sort of plays into this idea, not so much of good and evil, but that there's a very personal maliciousness behind what Ganon does in seeking out Hyrule in particular. 
it's implied through how powerful Ganon is and that Hyrule is singularly magical in its ability to defend itself from him that Ganon could go almost anywhere else in the world and conquer it easily, but he always throws himself against Hyrule because he hates it. Yeah, he seems to have a personal connection to it. Yes. Now, the other thing about Hyrule that you need to understand is that it's just ridiculously super, super magical. It's got people all in it. It the peoples derived from it are sort of like a bunch of different ideas of how you might present elves in other fantasy settings, except everyone is elves. All the different ethnicities that exist in Hyrule are different takes on what the concept of an elf might be. The Hylians are sort of like standard humans with pointy ears, which is like the most baseline understanding of what an elf could be. The Gerudo are a race of eight-foot-tall almost exclusively assigned female at birth Amazons who have to seek outside of their own people to procreate. The Gorons are an almost exclusively assigned male at birth race who both eat and seem to be produced from rocks. They're just bolder people. The Zora are sort of a... Well, not quite monastic. The Zora are a very spiritual race that exists in the water, and they tend to look like fish. They have, in Breath of the Wild in particular, they have heads that look like different marine life. So you'll have one particular Zora character whose head looks like a shark, and another one who looks like a particular kind of whale, or things like that. Rito are bird people who are removed from the rest of society just by the fact that they can fly around, but also move easily between the other cultures. There's the children of the forest who are literally born out of the woods, protected by the spirit of the great Deku tree, and they don't really interact with the more mercantile races. And lastly, there are the Sheikah, who are in many ways very similar to the Hylians, but they are also, almost to every person, a monastic order that encompasses the entire ethnicity. Now, the Sheikah in particular are important in Breath of the Wild because they are very close to the god. As near as can be understood, they exist specifically to serve the god, or they've pledged themselves to service of Hylia. And... At the time that this story begins, they aren't just monastic, they are also inventors of out-of-control advanced technology. One of the running themes throughout the Zelda series that's really played on a lot in Breath of the Wild is the coexistence between magic and technology that is so advanced that if everything wasn't made of lasers, you would think it was magic anyway. I was going to say they don't really distinguish between them. Like, they're called divine beasts, even though they're machines. Yes, that's very much true. But they make swords that are basically ignited hard light that extends out of empty scabbards. And they have running. They have robots that run around shooting beams of light that explode. And there's all sorts of things going on. At the time that this story starts, the Sheikah have decided that in service of Hyrule and in service of Hylia, they are going to come up with a plan to help the Hyrulean royal family. F*** up. 
the Calamity Ganon. Oh. Ganon comes back periodically every so often, and the idea behind it is that it's always defeated by a hero who wields a particular magical sword, and the princess of Hyrule, who wields the power of the goddess Hylia to seal Ganon away once the hero has defeated it. Now, the Sheikah, in this particular instance, decide to bypass the entire process. The process usually being that the calamity appears when nobody expects it to. It causes great havoc, takes many lives, and is defeated after the hero and the princess go on a long journey to gather their power. And the Sheikah say, no, no, no. This time, we're going to be ready for him, and we are going to the instant he shows up. So, in service of that, they build the divine beasts you mentioned, which are ten-story-tall, beast-shaped mecha that are basically mobile weapon platforms. They build autonomous tentacled robots called Guardians, each of them the size of an elephant that shoot laser beams out of their one eye. They build basically uh, magic past-future iPads that can control the elements, and I don't know that they ever used that in a combat capacity, but I have to think they probably did. They gather up all these different weapons that are meant to combat the Calamity, and they find the hero, and they get the hero his sword, and they find the princess, and they make sure that she has her power, and they wait. So, if historically the Gan- Calamity Ganon is defeated just by a hero and the princess, doesn't all this kind of seem like overkill? Well, it could be considered overkill, yes. But I think that the reasoning here is that if they don't go for this particular overkill maneuver, they're going to end up with another scenario where Ganon half destroys the kingdom and then he's sealed away, and then they spend however many decades rebuilding in the wake of the Calamity. But if they're prepared for him, then they can minimize the loss of life and preserve as much of Hyrule as possible. And if they can bring enough force to bear against him, maybe he just won't come back. That makes sense. So, finally, after however long, the Calamity Ganon appears. And it appears at the head of an army of monsters. And I can only imagine, since the Calamity in this story is very near to mindless, but it is able to plan and it is able to foresee events. So I can only think that when it came out intending to get its first strike against Hyrule, that it sees this arrayed force against it. And it's surprised because its entire army of monsters is immediately attacked by a uncountable swarm of killer laser-shooting robots. And it itself is being attacked by building-sized animal mecha that are just bombarding it with massive weapons that's never been seen in the history of this magical kingdom. And the hero immediately attacks it with the sword that seals the darkness and his monsters can't even attack the hero because of all the swarming killer robots and it is just the most complete ass whooping that Ganon has taken in its history and when it is sealed away by the princess that is the last note in the most total victory that Hyrule has ever had over the forces of darkness. Now that's all a very good thing you want to be able to take the forces of darkness and say, no, you, that's, no, go away. And so they do. And when Ganon's sealed away, it's sealed away with the power of the god. And everybody's happy f- for a while. But not 
long after the calamity is sealed away, there's a prophecy. And in Hyrule, prophecy is a very, very big deal, usually handed down through the channels of Hylia herself. And this prophecy in particular is important because it predicts the doom of the kingdom and how that doom will come about as a result of the weapons built by the Sheikah being turned against it. Now, this wouldn't be paid much attention to except for the fact that prophecy, real prophecy, in Hyrule is almost never wrong. So, the Sheikah fall from grace almost immediately. They are driven out, and the history and knowledge of the things they have built is destroyed almost completely. And without more technology built to destroy the machines, the guardians and the divine beasts can't be obliterated. So the people of Hyrule bury them. And they don't just halfway bury them. They really bury them under mountains so that it would take specific knowledge of where they are to find them again. And all of that knowledge is immediately destroyed. So the Sheikah built machines which delivered Hyrule the most complete and total victory as ever known against its ancient enemy. Uh -huh. So where did this prophecy come from that would cause them to betray the Sheikah even after this great victory? Well, that's just the thing. We don't actually hear where this specific prophecy came from, but it is relayed to us from the mouth of one of the Sheikah monks who was alive during the time. The Sheikah do not seem to have been betrayed in this sense, though they did fall from grace, in that they were part of the process of preparing for that prophecy coming about. They end up installing many shrines that are littered throughout the kingdom and buried alongside the guardians and the divine beasts, anticipating that if the prophecy of doom does come to pass and the hero falls, that the shrines and the trials within will be needed to help the hero regain their strength. The prophecy is never specifically said to come from any one mouth, but the only source of prophecy of any note in any story throughout the series is always the princess herself, who speaks in these cases with the clairvoyance of the goddess Hylia and the Sheikah, as servants of Hylia and her family, absolutely do not gainsay the rightness of them falling from grace. So the Sheikah kind of participated in their own fall from grace. Yes, absolutely. Eventually, the Sheikah end up splitting into two groups, a strictly monastic order that tries to live their lives more like normal people, apart from the great scientific breakthroughs that they had made before, and a splinter clan that was devoted to the revival of the Calamity Ganon in revenge for their fall from grace. So it's not appropriate to say that they were universally okay with how that went down, but generally speaking, the Sheikah tried to rebuild themselves and tried to do what would end up being best for Hyrule down the line. Now, the question became, how would the Calamity Ganon return? and what could be done to prevent it. Traditionally, the Calamity Ganon is sealed away, and over time, the seal would weaken for whatever reason, and once the seal was broken, the Calamity would return. 
and they did not want this to happen. The seal placed by the princess of Hyrule is a function of the power of the goddess Hylia and the Triforce, the creation engine over which she is sovereign. What is the Triforce? The Triforce is... It depends on which version of the Zelda story you're talking about. In some versions of it, it's sort of like a symbol that the gods are finished with their work on the world. In others, it is the essence of their being that is left behind when they pass into the heavens. In Link Between Worlds, it is literally the linchpin that makes the universe hold together. In Breath of the Wild, it's not exactly clear what role the Triforce serves save that it fuels the power of the Hyrulean royal family and keeps the Calamity Ganon in check. I don't think the Triforce is ever even named in Breath of the Wild. No, it's absolutely not. They don't make any reference to it. Out, They don't even make reference to the gods of the Triforce outside of one particular line in one memory uh, where Zelda says that she spends her time praying to the old gods, which wouldn't mean anything except for the fact that we see her wielding the Triforce later. So you've got this seal that has to be maintained, and the only people who can maintain it are the princess of Hyrule, typically named Zelda, and whoever she passes that seal down to. The power of Hylia is passed down through her family matrilineally, mother to daughter, to daughter, to daughter, to daughter. And in this particular case, they decide that they are going to keep that seal perfect and intact for as long as possible in hopes of outlasting the prophecy of doom. This works fine. The knowledge of how the seal works only exists between those two people, mother and daughter. No one else knows about it. Not the king of Hyrule, none of the Sheikah, no one. It's never written down. It's never part of any oral history except for what passes between mother and daughter. Gosh, I sure hope the mother never dies. Mm, well, the thing about it is that that seal holds unbroken for 10,000 years. Is that literally 10,000 years? Or is that just a euphemism for a long time? Um, that's really difficult to say. I think that probably it's derived from the frame of reference whereby 10,000 years is an arbitrarily long length of time. But it's also kind of fun to think that it might have gone on literally for 10 millennia, which is, what, 400 generations? I may be missing a zero. Uh, regardless, I like to think that it is literally 10,000 years. Based on what we learn in Breath of the Wild, knowledge of how the seal works passes on to the princess's daughter once that daughter reaches the age of seven. And that works fine. It keeps going and going, and no one ever knows and the fact of the seal is so secret that nobody outside of mother and daughter even knows that it exists. Which, it has to be that way because you have a secret clan of doomsday-worshipping murder ninjas who would kill you to bring back the devil. Now that all holds out fine until the birth of Princess Zelda 10,000 years later. Even at that point, everything seems to be fine. Uh, Zelda's mother, as is the standard for Zelda's mother throughout the series is never named so we can't know too much about her but we do know I bet I know what her name is what's that I bet I know what her name is I are, is it Zelda yes okay well maybe D did you happen to read Roam's journal 
I did not. No, I never found that. Oh, uh, well, I, I can tell you where that is later. A lot of what I'm deriving about this story is taken from his journal, uh, including this bit right here. Around the time that Zelda is six, her mother dies very mysteriously. No one seems to know exactly why it happened, but at the same time, nobody really questions anything about it either. At around the same time that Zelda's mother dies, one year before she would have passed on knowledge of the seal and how it works and what the divine power of the Hyrulean royal family is, a fortune teller appears. And this fortune teller offers up a different sort of prophecy. The prophecy of doom, of course, is long forgotten, just like everything else that was meant to be forgotten from 10,000 years ago. But this fortune teller gives us the prophecy that is relayed to us in the game itself. The weapons necessary to defeat the calamity, which will return soon, lay buried under the earth. This fortune teller appears right around the time Zelda's mother dies. And of course, there's no real way to say whether or not there's a connection between these two events, but they're connected. It's sort of a long-standing tradition in Zelda that anybody who appears and claims to be a fortune teller or comes from outside of the kingdom to offer advice to the royal family is specifically bad news. And what else is interesting is that this fortune teller doesn't feature at all in the story except for the prophecy that they give. So the Hyrulean royal family, they start excavating throughout all the different lands of Hyrule and they find the divine beasts and they find the guardians and they take this as proof that the prophecy is true and that these weapons need to be revived so that Ganon can be defeated. The interesting thing about that is that the prophecy given by the fortune teller also mentions the hero and it mentions the princess. So they go out and around this time, by the way, there is a young boy named Link who will be mildly important later. And I think at this point he was probably living with the Zora. It's not exactly clear why, though we do know that his father was a knight in service to the Hyrulean royal family and that he was a person of some distinguishment since he was friends with the Zora king. And Link himself is a playmate of both the Zora princess and her younger brother. But regardless, during this period where they are digging up the ancient weapons and trying to repair them, Link is given training to be worthy to wield the sword that seals the darkness. And Zelda is given a mandate that she is to revive the power of the Hyrulean royal family without the knowledge that her mother would have passed to her. She doesn't have a teacher. She doesn't have a guide. She does not have a book to read from. There are no hints about anything. She turns to prayer, which is assumed to be how this is supposed to work. I don't know if the idea of prayer unlocking the power of the Hyrulean royal family came from the fortune teller or not, but it did not come out of a vacuum. Because normally, prayer in Hyrule is not considered a source of power. You go out and you earn it by changing yourself. But Zelda prays. For ten years she trains and prays, and nothing comes of it. The power does not awaken within her. 
And during this time, she also spends some time with a pair of Sheikah researchers who are learning all that they can about the Guardians and the Divine Beasts. And Link, of course, gets the Master Sword sometime during all of this. And by getting the Master Sword, he proves that he is worthy of acting as the personal guard of Zelda. So he's assigned to travel around with her while she does her prayer thing. So Link... Link uh, is sort of fulfilling his role, and Zelda's not. She's struggling. Yes. Well, there is an awfully big difference between those two scenarios, isn't there? Link's whole thing is that he has to prove that he is courageous, and that he can fight, and that he is willing to face the darkness, because that is the soul of the hero, willingness to do things that others cannot. And that change that he makes within himself is very different from the challenge that is laid before Zelda, which is figure it out. What am I supposed to figure out? No one knows, but figure it out. Zelda's failing, but she's only failing in the same sense that you or I would be failing if we were trying to build a helicopter using deadwood. So, so during all this, they manage to reinitiate the divine beasts. They can walk, they can move, and through research, they are able to determine that these divine beasts are piloted by champions. So they go to each of the mercantile nations and select specific people that are either very well suited to the task or else high enough ranking in their society that they are able to stand as champions of their own ethnicities. Uh, there's Lady Arbosa, who is the leader of the Gerudo. I like her. Oh, yeah, she's really good. She's good in a lot of ways. I particularly like the way that she interacts with Zelda and how every concern that she expresses is about Zelda rather than the larger situation at hand. Uh, there's Daruk, who is not a chieftain of the Gorons, the rock people, but is a warrior of some esteem who has a magical ability apparently developed himself which allows him to survive any blow of force leveled against him there is Rivali, who is one of the rito and he's basically falco lombardi that's a lazy joke but it's only lazy because it's true he is a complete asshole who just happens to back that up with the fact that he is the best flyer among his people the best archer, and generally speaking, the most capable combatant that his age has produced from his own perspective. And there's Mipha, the Zora princess, who proves herself to be the most capable champion in terms of being able to control one of the divine beasts and is a healer of immense power, able to bring people back from the very edge of death as if it had never happened. She, of course, would be Link's former playmate. Now, they gather up all the champions, and they all learn to pilot the Divine Beasts. And the Sheikah researchers begin to repair the Guardians. And the entire force starts to come together. And during all of this, Zelda is doing her best to try to unlock the power. But the gods are silent. The only hint she has about how any of this is supposed to work is that she remembers her grandmother talking about how she could hear the voices of the spirits and her mother, in turn, also could hear voices that other people could not hear. Now, we know that it's from the goddess Hylia, but she has no idea, no frame of reference by which to understand that. 
And she tries and tries and tries to get this power from within herself. And it's fruitless because she can't understand something that's never explained to her. And all this time they labor under the assumption that Ganon will appear at a particular time. That time being when they are ready because that is what the fortune teller told them. That doesn't mean that there's no pressure here. There's plenty of pressure. The assumption is that it's possible for Zelda to fail in reawakening the power. And if she does, it may break the prophecy. And she goes and she prays at all the temples to the goddess scattered throughout the land of Hyrule, and nothing happens. And with that failure, her father thinks perhaps the answer is not in prayer. Perhaps I will tell her to pursue the things that she loves and she will find her answer somewhere else. And at the same time, Zelda thinks that finally she will face her father and tell him that this isn't the answer. It has to lie somewhere else and that she can't do this anymore. It's a good place to be at because that means they'll be able to find what she actually needs to do. And that is exactly when the calamity reappears. It is at the moment when the divine beasts and the guardians have been returned to power, not full power, but enough, and when the champions have been gathered, and when the hero is awake, but the power to seal Ganon away is missing. That feels a bit suspicious. Yes, you would think, right? It's almost like the whole thing was orchestrated somehow. I've got a lot of ideas about how that DLC might go, let me tell you. So they gather up all of their forces, and they prepare to hit Ganon. Because they figure, well, even without the power to seal Ganon away, maybe they can just beat him to death. Which, not a terrible idea. It's happened before. Yes, it has. So they all gather in the same place, converging on Hyrule Castle as a body. And we learn here that the power to seal evil wielded by the princess is the only thing that was protecting these automatons from being controlled by Ganon in the first place. Because Ganon is an infectious evil that changes the world around it, that can touch things and make them like himself. So all at once, he seizes control of every functioning guardian and all four of the divine beasts. And the champions die. And everyone in Hyrule Castle and the surrounding town Die. The king himself is murdered in the sanctum. And Zelda and Link only escape because the champions converged on Ganon first and Link didn't make it to Hyrule Castle quite in time. Basically the worst case scenario. It is absolutely the worst case scenario because now not only is Ganon free and his monsters are running amok, but also there's a bunch of killer robots that shoot lasers that are now specifically serving Ganon, and it's just a really bad scene. This is the part that makes me think that Fortune Teller was some kind of incarnation or servant of Ganon, and he wanted to awaken the Divine Beast just so he could control them. That's how I see it. It sounds kind of a gone him X, doesn't it? So throughout all of this, Link, it's not clear exactly what Link is trying to do. Zelda is so overwrought with her own failure that she has no plan of action. And Link only seems to be focusing on getting her as far away from the Calamity as possible. So it's interesting when you're playing the game because you can trace the specific path that they take trying to flee to Kakariko Village, which is far east of Hyrule Castle Town, where Link fights alone through dozens of guardians 
slaughtering them, but he is still only one person, in spite of the fact that he is very powerful, and eventually he is brought low by the gathered forces. As he's wounded and about to die, Zelda stands between him and the last guardian, and her desire to protect him, or her grief over what's happened, or her rage at what's happened to her people, or all of these combinations together, awakens the power within her, and she lashes out with it without realizing what it is. And when she does, it drives Ganon's power out of the Guardians, deactivating them completely, leaving them empty husks lying on the ground. Now that only happens to the particular group that had pursued her and Link, but the proof of concept is there. And, well, with a princess and a hero, that's enough to beat Ganon, if you can work together, except that it's too late. Link is mortally wounded and will die, and Zelda herself cannot defeat Ganon alone. One particular bit that I forgot to mention is that when they were digging up all this stuff, they happened to find a shrine that seemed to be built solely to resurrect a person who had been brought to the edge of death, as if this one place was built just in case the hero were defeated by Ganon. Almost like that sort of thing had happened before. So, Zelda has Link taken by two Sheikah soldiers, who you may actually recognize from other places in the story, to the Shrine of Resurrection, where it will take 100 years for him to be revived. 100 years is much too long to wait and let Ganon be loose. He will annihilate the entire world before Link wakes up. So, instead of waiting, Zelda goes to Hyrule Castle by herself and faces the Calamity alone and rests him into the sanctum of Hyrule Castle, where her father was killed, and holds Ganon there with her power for the 100 years that it takes for Link to wake up. So, when she uses this power, the symbol of the Triforce appears in her hand. It does. What connection do you think it has with the Triforce? Oh, that's... a Good question, because it's not just the symbol of the Triforce that appears on her hand, it's also the particular sound of the Triforce, that ringing, very clear bell sound that you might remember from when the two pieces of the Triforce of Wisdom were combined in Wind Waker. It's that same sound there, so it is definitely the power of the Triforce that's being wielded by her, but it's not the entirety of it. It's not the whole engine of creation. If it was, she could do all sorts of things to change this, unless the Calamity has become so fundamental to the universe that the engine of creation itself is incapable of erasing him. To me, it did look like the whole Triforce, because it never appears on Ganon or Link like it traditionally does. There's no question that Zelda herself is the only person in this story with the access to the power of the gods. Link himself has strength, but all of that strength is either within himself or bequeathed to him by the people that he proves himself to or assists, and Ganon's power is solely, by now, Ganon's own. Zelda wields the power of the gods, but the form that that takes isn't especially clear. It could be that she is a conduit for the powers of the Triforce, and that she can wield it in very specific ways, or it could also be that she does actually have the power of creation inside of her, and never knows it, and isn't able to use it because she does not have that knowledge. So, she holds Ganon in place for 100 years while Link sleeps. And Link finally wakes up, and his memory is gone, and he is left to find his way around Hyrule, 
guided only by the voice of Zelda and, initially, the spirit of the murdered king to try to gather up the strength that he has lost. In the battle where he was defeated, Link lost the sword that seals the darkness. It was in his hand the entire time, but it was very nearly destroyed. And Zelda took it before facing Ganon and placed it in a particular wood alongside the forest children, protected by the great Deku Tree, who is one of the only spirits in Hyrule powerful enough to keep the forces of Ganon away so long as Ganon is trapped. So the idea behind Link's work here, as outlined to him by people who lived through the calamity or else died in it, is to gather up the power of the divine beast that had been meant to be used against Ganon, to retrieve the sword that seals the darkness, to restore as much of his prior strength as possible, and then to find Ganon and assist Zelda in finally killing it. And the strength he had before was the kind that you never really even get through the game. It's the kind where he can just plow through a dozen guardians and lionels at once. Yes, that's a very interesting thing about it, in that you get flashes on understanding of how bad Link is in theory during certain parts of the gameplay. One of the things that sets Breath of the Wild apart from other Zelda games mechanically is its focus on how different combat systems come together. If you dodge an enemy attack at just the right time, you get a special maneuver called a flurry rush where Link goes into sort of an accelerated time state and attacks the enemy at very high speed, which is presented to us as extreme slow motion. Link will just zip over great lengths, several body lengths, uh, and strike enemies something like, depending on the weapon he's carrying, somewhere between four and ten times in the space of time that it would normally take an enemy to not even finish their swing, but to begin a new strike. He's moving at such speeds that it's difficult to apply a proper frame of reference to it. He can jump off of a rock that's six feet in the air and plug 15 different monsters with arrows directly in their heads before he hits the ground. There's this sense over the course of the game that even though you're building your strength, you never end up getting all of it back. And this is probably illustrated best in the way that the Master Sword works. When Link is defeated, the Master Sword is pitted and rusted and looks as if it's been corroded by all the battles that he's been in. And that is the same state that it is in when Zelda places it in the Great Hyrule Forest. But when Link wakes up, when he has regained his health, if not his strength, he is able to find the sword. And he has to have a certain degree of his strength back in order to draw it. Because the sword will only be wielded by a worthy hand. And if your hand is not worthy, it will kill you. And that's, I think that's actually one of my favorite sequences in the game. Where you try to draw the sword and it just kills you if you don't have enough hearts. Yeah, that's not really an aspect of the sword that's been present before. I think it's something that they were sort of hinting at, in that the sword would only allow itself to be carried to a certain degree, but also the sword is much weaker than it was when Link was at his full strength. It can only be awakened to its true power when it is in the presence of the power of the Calamity Ganon. And even then, once it expends itself to a certain degree, it has to rest 
and cannot be used. Almost as if the strength of the sword is tied to Link's own strength, which is one of the things that I find most interesting about how that works, because it, it means that you go through the entire game hobbled compared to how the story should really be going. This is the last chapter where the hero, having been badly injured, limps his way to the final battle with a half-broken weapon, and the victory that he manages to rest is made more impressive thereby. Except that's the entire game. So we've got all that. And he gathers the sword and he goes to each of the nations where the champions hailed from. And he finds the divine beasts. So Link goes to the Zora. The Zora are interesting in the context of this story in particular because we learn that they are much more long-lived than the average denizen of Hyrule. We know that they can live somewhere between 200 and 300 years. So most characters that Link meets when he is among the Zora remember him. Many of them remember him because they were children who played with him and the princess, and others remember him and resent him because he is remembered as the person who took the princess of the Zora away and led her to a battle where she lost her life. Link goes to this place, and the Zora King remembers him. And the Zora Prince does not, because he was too young at the time. But he's seeking a Hylian champion to help them stop the Divine Beast, which is sort of a legendary figure for the Zora, because they have also forgotten its real history. And it's producing so much water that it is going to break the massive reservoir that the Zora and the Hylians built together thousands and thousands of years ago. And if that reservoir breaks because the divine beast Varuta can actually produce water magically, it will not only destroy Zora's domain, but the floods will destroy the vast majority of Hyrule. So this is one of those cases where you need to do the thing, not just for the reasons that you set out to do, but because it's going to theoretically have impact on the entire setting. In some sense, since Ganon is in the valley where the castle is, wouldn't he be flooded too? Would that work, or would that just break the seal? Would water kill Ganon? Oh, it did once before. Oh man, I gotta think about that one. Ah. Uh, but no, I'm willing to bet that the reason that Varuta was going to break the reservoir was specifically to flood Hyrule Castle in hopes that this would break the stalemate between Ganon and Zelda and allow Ganon to be free. Anyway, they need a Hylian to free their people from Varuta because accessing the inside of it requires the use of a magical arrow that the Zora can't really handle because it shoots lightning everywhere and they live in water. And they have their, their water-type Pokémon, I suppose? Yeah, the Zora are all water-type Pokémon. Yeah, but, like, humans are water-type, too. No, no, no. Humans are plainly normal-type, and, um... But we're, we're 70% water. Yeah, Zoras are, like, more, I guess. We're not elementally aligned to the spirit of water. I can't swim up a waterfall. Okay. Regardless, they can't handle it. Link can handle it. That's the whole premise behind it. You need to use shock arrows to get inside of Varuta. So, Link fights his way inside of Varuta which is the divine beast of water, and finds that it is infected entirely with the power of the Calamity Ganon. And he has to go all throughout it, activating different nodes that allow him to try to regain control of the beast. And when he tries to regain control of it, the blight condenses into a single being, the same being that murdered the Zora princess 100 years ago. And Link fights it, and Link kills it, 
because of course he does. And once it's dead, he is able to regain control of the divine beast. And the Zora princess, Mipha, whose spirit has been therein trapped for 100 years, reasserts her connection to the divine beast and prepares it for the battle with Ganon, which she can do now because Ganon is not awake to take control of it. Seems like ghosts have a lot of power in this world. Yeah, ghosts do definitely have a lot of power. I think it's partially derived from the fact that you don't have to physically control the divine beasts in the first place. They seem to be either mentally or spiritually connected to the champions that pilot them, which is why the ghosts can stick around. There's been a bit of interesting conversation about exactly the nature of the blighted power of Ganon that controls the Divine Beast, and whether or not they might actually be derived from the champions that died. Because when Link fights the water blight Ganon, inside of Aruta. It uses the same weapon, just on a larger scale, that Mipha uses. And when the Water Blight Ganon is killed, Mipha's spirit is freed, which implies that there is some link between the Blight itself and whatever it is that happened to Mipha or to her body. Now, some people take that to mean that it's possible that the bosses you face throughout the game are the corrupted bodies of the champions who died a hundred years ago. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but I do like the idea that it might be true that their spirits are trapped within them. Them, that second them being the uh, blights themselves. So anyway, we've got one divine beast down and Link goes to the desert and a lot of shit happens in the desert. The long and short of it is that the divine beast, Vanaboris, is kicking up a sandstorm and shooting lightning at anything that comes near it. So Link has to ally himself with the head of the Gerudo tribe, a 12-year-old named Riju, who is able to get him close to Naboris because she has her, she has Lady Urbosa's helmet, which would protect whoever wears it from lightning. So using the helmet, the two of them are able to get close, and Link is able to get inside of Naboris, and he fights through again, and he frees the spirit of Urbosa. And she says something that's very interesting. Urbosa is Gerudo, and she's very, very powerful, and she's very proud, both of herself and her powers and of her people. And the thing about the Calamity Ganon is that it is utterly unknown where Ganon came from in this. But among the Gerudo, there is a story passed down that once, long, long ago, the Calamity took on the form of a Gerudo. And to Arbosa, this is a very great personal insult that makes the fight very personal in a way that her own death did not, because that is a slight against the pride of her people. It's an interesting framing, took the form of a Gerudo. Yes, because that implies that, I suppose we should say now, that the origin of Ganon, as we understand it in the context of the rest of the series, is that Ganondorf, a character from the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, was the first incarnation of Ganon, a man born among the Gerudo who came to power, gained part of the Triforce for himself, and became a monster. And it's been assumed for the past 20 years that that was necessarily the first incarnation of Ganon because we didn't know anything earlier 
And Nintendo has said more than once that that's the first time Ganon ever appeared. I'm sure that there's people right now flipping through their Hyrule Historia to see if this particular line of dialogue contradicts anything. And it does. You don't have to check. I'm telling you right now. But it's interesting because Urbosa's line and her surety of it seems to imply that knowledge of Ganon predates the events of Ocarina of Time, or at least the spirit of Ganon predates the events of Ocarina of Time. There's a few different ways to read that. You can read Ganon as being the incarnation of an eternal curse placed by a demon king in the long before time, or you can read Ganon as a sort of constant, in the same way that the Triforce is a constant, and the hero is a constant, and the princess is a constant. The idea that Ganon is a universal constant is very new to this series, because it means that not just one person is Ganon, but in the same way that a person can become the hero through work and through trials, and the princess rises to the power of the goddess by making changes within herself through grief and love and pain and loss and fury that a person with enough hunger and enough hate and enough rage could also ascend to the form of Ganon without necessarily being the same person as Ganondorf the Gerudo from Ocarina of Time. So let's see, where did I go next? I went to Death Mountain next. So Death Mountain's bad. It's not really a bad place. If you're a rock person, it's fine. But for Hylians, if they go there, they just catch on fire. The air's on fire, and if you go there, you'll catch on fire. Link has ways around that, because of course he does. It's a video game. But I like to have Link run around in the big metal suit with the steel top knot so that he's protected from the flames by the goofiest outfit in the entire game. The Divine Beast Rudania is on Death Mountain, causing it to periodically undergo minor eruptions, which is very bad for the Gorons, who depend economically on the gems that can be mined from Death Mountain, and also depend personally on the stones that they can eat from the Death Mountain peaks. It's a very bad situation for the Gorons. It would be a slow build of problems, but eventually is going to come down and they know that they're going to be destroyed. So Link fights his way up to Rudania with the help of a particular Goron who is a descendant of Daruk and shares his power. And he fights his way into Rudania. He frees the spirit of Daruk and the third divine beast is prepped to enter battle against Ganon when the moment is right. Can we talk for a second about what it means to be a descendant of a Goron? Yes, by all means. Do you have any ideas you would like to put forth? Uh, so they, they come from rocks, right? That... We don't know. We know... If we can get into my theory that Gerudo and Gorons are the same species. Okay, yeah, actually, I like this. I like this a lot because there's a lot of parallels between the Gerudo and the Gorons. So are, are you suggesting that among the Gorons that they're... The instance of any Goron or Gerudo, we'll assume that they're the same species. We'll just call them the G species. Any particular individual of the G species who would be assigned masculine at birth would be a Goron, and anyone who would be assigned feminine at birth would be a Gerudo. Uh, roughly, yes. So how do you see that working? Um, well, there are rocks, right? Yeah. And then Gerudo are sand, so they're like soft rocks. Okay. 
There's like hard rocks and soft rocks. You you get it? I I kind of do. I kind of do. I don't know that I'm going to follow you down this path. And they're 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 both uh, associated with Din. Uh huh. But then also the Rito are too. Are the Rito? Yeah, they they had the Din stone in Wind Waker. Oh, they did have Din's pearl. That's true. They did do that. Yeah. Huh. Um. One's all boys. One's all girls. Yeah, that's true. Uh. Though I do think it would be worth examining um, the idea of Gerudo as an exclusively female race, because there are certain things that have been brought up that suggest that's not really true. Like Ganondorf? Well, no, not necessarily Ganondorf, but that there are certain details in the uh, Gerudo town that suggests that some of the Gerudo, even though they are assumed to be female at birth, may actually be trans men i don't know if that's what they're going for no i think you're probably right but that is something that and keep in mind this entire conversation that we're having is sort of hinging on things that we're not entirely sure what they're going for and you're probably right but at the same time it's an interesting point of fact that there is a shop dedicated specifically to selling masculine clothes in a city where men are not allowed to live. And the Gorons are allowed in the city. They are allowed in the city. That brings up other questions, though. Do the Gerudo just not see Gorons as having gender at all? Or do they think of Gorons if they're all... Gorons are monogendered, or not necessarily monogendered, but if they all present the same way, is the default Gerudo assumption that they're women? I mean, okay. There's really only the the couple Gorons that identify themselves as men to begin with. Okay. The Gut Check Rock Brothers. Okay. I don't, no one else really calls themselves men. They're just Gorons. There is one um, in Gerudo Town specifically who uses negative implication to say, um, I thought they didn't allow men into the city, which indicates to me that that particular Goron identifies as a man. Have you ever heard of the concept of a gaydar? Yeah, yes. Uh, well, there's a similar concept for uh, trans women who are closeted. Is this the is this the egg thing? Where you can kind of tell that maybe something's going on. Oh. Uh, uh, uh. Oh, I see. So this is the opposite direction of where I was going to take this conversation. Not necessarily that some of the yeah. Gerudo are men, but that some of the Gorons are women. Yeah, I'm saying those Gorons are girls. Oh, even if they don't know it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Hey! Sure. Okay, let's move on. Yeah. This is... Everything with the Gerudo is so fucking weird and dumb. It's really weird, and it's really dumb. And at the same time, I like almost every character involved in the whole sequence. I wish they weren't so straight, so aggressively straight. That's also a problem. Urbosa's pretty gay. Just yeah like like half the dialogue is about how they need to find men it's like yeah why are you pushing your heterosexuality on us yeah that's it yeah it's it's impossible to have a very uh uh generous reading of that i guess the most generous you could have is that it's sort of like uh, an occidental thing where it's like okay so we need to get out there and do something what the fuck do men like? And that's where a lot of the conversations come from. But it's uh, 
the effect that it has is deeply unfortunate. So anyway, Gorons are made from rocks and Gerudo have born out of the sand. What about the Rito? Uh, you know, we never see a Rito egg, do we? You would assume they come from eggs, but we don't know that. They could be just live births. Huh. Anyway... So, speaking of the Rito, yes, Link does end up going over to the country of the Rito. And that presents its own problems because Rito can fly. And the divine, the divine Beast can fly. And the only reason that the champion of the Rito was able to fly the Divine Beast was because they could fly. And I think that's probably one of the big reasons that he was picked as a champion in the first place. So... Link makes his way up to Va Meadow in easily the shortest seek of any of these sequences in the entire game. Uh, but I thought it was really cool, the part where you had to go in slow motion while your partner was being shot at by death lasers and dodging them all crazy-like. That was cool. And he gets his way on there, he frees the spirit of Falco Lombardi, and everything's prepped to be able to fight Ganon. Over the course of this adventure, Link has been traveling between different places, trying to recover some small part of his memory using Zelda's iPad and the photographic references that she took of their travels together. And using those, he's able to piece together certain things about his relationships, both with Zelda and with the other champions. And as he gathers all of these and finishes putting his past together as best he can, he never regains all of his memory. He never gains all of his strength. He never is quite the same person that he was before he fell. But he does put together enough to know that certain things are important. And when he puts together all of his memories of the champions and of Zelda, the voice of Zelda speaks to him and tells him that now he is ready to face Ganon. He is as whole as it is possible for him to be. Which is still not completely whole. No, it's not. He travels all throughout Hyrule, and as he's freeing the Divine Beasts and reconnecting with the champions and rediscovering his memories and understanding how he related to Zelda and the king and all these other disparate elements of the plot, he's also doing trials that were set up by the Sheikah 10,000 years ago in anticipation of this specific thing. And these trials, over time, are what allow him to regain so much of his strength. These trials are also specifically where we learn that the prophecy that Link operates according to is wrong, and that the prophecy of doom, mentioned only after the trials of strength, is the one prophecy that should have been paid attention to. So he gathers up all of his strength. He has all of the champions free. The divine beasts are ready for battle. And Zelda's waiting. So he goes to Hyrule Castle, which is swarming with guardians. And because he's recovered enough of his strength, he manages to fight his way through all of them. And gets to the sanctum, where Zelda has been holding Ganon down the entire time. And in that moment, Link finds that Zelda is not physically there. Whatever method she has used to trap the calamity she is essentially now inside of the storm when link enters there ganon senses the presence of its hated nemesis and revives itself but because zelda has been holding it back and keeping it from building its strength when it revives it's this twisted monstrosity of different weapons just piled onto a body that can barely support them guardian parts that have been cloven off and grafted on to just horrible it's a big icky spider beast with teeth like a person and a big beard it's awful do you think that's rome's body if you're going at the whole champion body thing 
I think that that would be a very interesting direction to take it. And it would add a certain almost appealing grotesquerie to the finale there, wouldn't it? Uh, when you add the Calamity Ganon to your compendium, it does mention that the body itself is only half finished. But the idea that it's using the form of the dead king as a medium by which to stitch itself back together, I don't know if that's necessarily supported, but it does have a certain echo with the way other bosses work. Regardless, Link and Ganon fight. And just as Link never regains his strength because he was dead, Ganon never regains his strength because Zelda is still, even now, at the last very dregs of her power holding him back. And Link defeats Ganon as Link has defeated Ganon in ages past. And Ganon is completely destroyed physically. In the past, destroying Ganon physically was all that it took, yeah? But now, when Ganon is destroyed physically, its spirit manifests as this enormous boar monster that is itself easily the size of any of the divine beasts. Oh, I forgot to mention the bit where the divine beasts shoot Ganon with sickhouse giant blue lasers. That happened. Yeah, it was underwhelming. Yeah, I, I kind of liked it. I, I think there's a few things I would change about the way that whole final battle works. I think that I would... I'm Your idea where Ganon has five life bars and the divine beasts each blow off one life bar, I like that. And if you go after Ganon without freeing the divine beast you just have to fight it with five life bars yeah really give the speedrunners some fucking problems ganon revives itself in its pure untempered form and zelda tells link that ganon was born of an ancient and horrible story and that now it has given up on reincarnation to assume its purest form hatred and malice personified the whole idea behind ganon is that it really 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 hates Hyrule, and it hates the gods of Hyrule, and it hates everyone who lives there. And its hate is so strong that it can kill by the power of its hate alone. And I think the idea is that over time, Ganondorf, or Ganon, was so consumed with rage that they just lost all sense of themselves. And that hate, that urge to destroy, is right now very nearly all that's left. Ganon's not completely without intelligence. It recognizes Link, and it recognizes Zelda when she appears. But it is so far removed from the relatively eloquent incarnations of Ganon that we've seen in the past that it's almost like a completely different creature. It's the stuff that makes up its body is called malice. And it's tempting to think of that as just being a cutesy way to refer to evil goop. I almost like to think of it as being literal, as if its malice has become so profound that it has become a physical element that it can gather about itself as a frame to move on. So Link, with Zelda's power, does battle with Ganon once more. And I think that in terms of how you play it as a game, this is sort of the victory lap where you've done the fight, now it's time to win. But at the end of it, we see Link shoot Ganon in the core of its being, which is just a bunch of terrible golden eyes staring out from within. When an arrow of light strikes Ganon there, it is weakened enough for Zelda to let go and manifest physically again. And that's one of my favorite things in the entire game is that moment where Ganon focuses. And it's the first time you really get 
a sense of Ganon's intelligence throughout the whole thing when he looks at Zelda. And you can't read fear into that face, but you can read the understanding of what's about to happen. It doesn't feel like a human-like understanding, though. It's more like an animal recognizing something. Uh, you say it's like an animal recognizing fire, perhaps, but there's no question that Ganon sees Zelda and recognizes that shit is about to get real bad. From there, the last thing that Link ever does is shoot Ganon with an arrow of light in the core of its being. Zelda, from there, manifests and wields the power of the gods to obliterate Ganon's body. And Ganon's spirit is unleashed, its purest form, beyond its body. And it appears for a moment as if it will try to fight Zelda. There's this long, long sequence where she makes eye contact with it as it writhes in the sky. And just when it seems as if it will try to engage her as it did a hundred years ago, it begins to flee. And she unleashes all of her power at once. And as near as we can tell just from looking at it, the Calamity Ganon is utterly obliterated. They even do the little shrinking down into a black hole looking speck and poof, disappearing bit. Nice. Yeah. It's, Get owned. It's, yeah. That's like the most uh, complete visual representation of the defeat that any one creature has ever had in this entire series. It, I, I really liked everything that they did visually in that sequence. So good. Can we talk for a moment about the eye imagery with Ganon? Sure. The way it's the core of its being is an eye, and like the malice has eyes all over it throughout the world. Yes. Because that's never really been associated with Ganon before, but it has been associated with another villain, Vati. Okay. Uh, do you have a particular uh, direction you you think that this might be leaning? Well, the way they talk about Ganon in this game feels like the identity of Ganon has subsumed Demise's curse and basically become one and the same. Right. So all incarnations of Demise's curse, be it you know Vati or Ganon or any of the other monsters and villains throughout the games, are just known as Ganon, and that's why Urbosa refers to Ganondorf as an incarnation of the Calamity Ganon. Now that's a, that's definitely an interesting take on it. I don't know that I necessarily agree with it because I don't know that I necessarily like the idea or see textual support for the idea that all the major villains throughout the series are incarnations of Demise's hatred because Demise was the head of the demon tribe, but he was not the only one. It seems just as possible to me that Maladus, that Belom, that uh, whatever primordial form Vati had, might have been different members of the demon tribe. Yeah, I guess I would distinguish between the Hyrulean villains and the non-Hyrulean villains, because Ganon is very much has a personal relationship with Hyrule. Yes. Okay, that's fair then. So we can rule out things like Maladus, we can rule out Belom, uh, we can rule yes. out Majora. But then if you go that far, how many villains are you really left with outside of the ones from the Capcom games? Oh, uh, well, this is basically it, ain't it? Yeah. Demise, Ganon, Vati, some of the Oracle Boys. Well, those are Hyrulean either. No, those don't count. Yeah, those are from uh, Holodrum and what was the other one? Uh, it doesn't matter. I don't remember. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. But... I think I kind of understand the idea that the eye is an important image to Vati, and it previously was not to Ganondorf. But I don't know if that's so much a link to Vati as it is a... There's two ways that you can look at this. You can look at the eyes as imagery just within Breath of the Wild, or you can look at the eyes as imagery in the context of the entire series. In Breath of the Wild, the eyes are intelligent. 
They watch you. They react to you specifically in the things that you do. They wield magic that allows them to summon the dead, not just dead monsters, but it summons the dead to hound you as you try to free the divine beasts. And if we accept that the malice, those pools of hatred littered throughout Hyrule, are extensions of Ganon's power, then perhaps the eyes themselves are Ganon's perspective, his ability to see, his ability to understand, and that by brushing against them we are brushing against or blotting out his awareness. If we take the eyes as being symbolic of his understanding, then I think that in seeing that the core of him is just a riot of horrible eyes, then maybe we can assume that beneath the outer layers of the dark beast Ganon, the, in, the pure embodiment of hatred and malice, that within that there is still a core intelligence looking outward, and that though we never interact with that there may be something there that you could even talk to. That's just the, that's just the thought that I had about it. But if you look, to, look at it in the context of the rest of the series, of course there's the Vati connection, because Vati's very big on eyes, but at the same time so is um, Argus. Argus is very big on eyes. Eyes are, in the Zelda series, eyes just mean shoot here. <laughs> so it, I think that uh, we can take a certain narrative meaning from that as well. You are probably right that you could draw connections between Vati and the Calamity Ganon based on the presence of their eyes, as if Vati were one incarnation of Ganon's hate. But I don't know. That's, that's something I'd have to think about for a little bit longer, I think. And then the Sheikah are also connected with eyes. It's their symbol. Yes, eyes as the symbol of... Now, it's interesting because in Breath of the Wild, it's specifically laid out that the Sheikah eye symbol, which was, I think I read this in the art book, which was created just to look cool in Ocarina of Time. In this one, it specifically symbolizes the sight of the goddess Hylia that certain Sheikah are blessed with. So it is the eyes of the Sheikah of Hylia that stand in opposition to the eyes of Ganon, framing the entire thing as knowledge and awareness pitted against each other in different ways, which also works, I think, in that the knowledge of the Sheikah, the knowledge of Hylia, was used to create these weapons, and the knowledge of Ganon later was used because he's essentially mindless in many ways, but he's also apparently cunning enough to appear when he cannot be stopped and to seize control of the weapons that were previously used against him. So there's an intelligence there that we never really get to see. And that's frustrating in a way, because I think that would be very interesting. But it's also not really the role that he had to fulfill in this story. It's not really... As much as Ganon is important to the framing, ultimately Ganon is just framing. This is a story about Link, and it's a story about Zelda... I guess you could argue in many ways. He's just a calamity. Yeah, it's just the disaster that happened to befall these people and everyone they cared about. I hope the DLC does something extra with it, though. God alive. Yeah, what's up with the mural where Link looks like Ganon? Man, I, I, I don't know. I thought about. I thought for a long time that was going to come up. I really did. And now I look back on it, and it's like, well, Zelda kind of looks like she's on fire, and... Oh, maybe that's just the art. She kind of looks like a great fairy, I guess. Kind of. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't touch on it. Link literally has fucking tusks. Does he? Uh, hold on. Let me see. Yeah, in that mural, he has tusks. Oh, okay. Well, let me see if I can find that real quick. Breath of the Wild map. 
okay, so he has tusks. But it's interesting because the colors that are traditionally associated with Ganon, red and dark blue, aren't really associated with the Calamity in this one. He's purple, pure purple, until he manifests and then he has the red of the Corrupted Guardians and the blue of the Guardian weapons. But yeah, I, I don't know. It seemed like they could eventually do something with that, but we've also proven pretty conclusively that Link probably doesn't have anything to do with Ganon at this point, unless there's some hidden memory that we have yet to find. I don't think that the DLC is going to do anything with that. It would be cool if it did. The way they, they frame it, like, even right as Dark Beast Ganon appears, Zelda's like, you may not have regained all your memories, even if you've done all of them, makes me think that DLC is going to be about completing the memory recall. That would be really cool. It would also be really cool if on, because she also mentions in that sequence that you have not regained your strength. It would also be cool if it had something to do with regaining your strength. But I think that my personal hope for it is that I'm not just chasing shadows with this whole fortune teller thing. Because that's there textually. I think there's enough there to draw all the conclusions about it that I've drawn. But if the DLC dealt with the fortune teller in particular, that has the potential to do something very interesting. But I can't really guess at any of it. I'm not sure how any of it would work. And I think that's kind of really exciting that they've built this narrative that is self-contained enough that it feels complete but has enough hooks in it that you look at it and go oh i wonder if they're gonna do this or i wonder if we're gonna fight a ganim or possibly ganondorf you know it's gonna be nothing though right <laughs> yeah because it has to take place before the end of the story because there's no post game in this game oh that reminds me of a question I wanted to ask you. You mentioned before Breath of the Wild came out, or I think before Breath of the Wild was even revealed as having the Calamity Ganon in it, that instead of Ganondorf, you wanted the pig beast Ganon to be in the next one. Yeah. Did th yeah. Did this fulfill? I miss that guy. Did this fulfill that for you? Or was that a miss? Um, I kind of wish you had fought straight up, you know, Trident Blue Pig Ganon. Uh, but otherwise, yes, I very like. Very much like how he is dehumanized. Mm. He's not a person, he's a calamity. Okay, that makes sense. Did Yuga Ganon not scratch that itch for you? No, because it's just Yuga using Ganon. It's, it's not the same. Yeah, that's the same argument I have to have with people. I'm just curious because, you know, at least that looked like Ganon. But, I mean, I like the Calamity Ganon. I think the Calamity Ganon is super cool. But at the same time definitely not i really like the way he swirls around the castle it's so cool that design is so good he alternates between like a pig form and a dark knight form seamlessly oh, it's, and every time it looks like it's gonna bust loose zelda's power shines out from the sanctum and the calamity is quieted again it's such oh it's so good it's like everything they were trying to do with the imprisoned that worked for one scene worked throughout the entire game for the calamity ganon yep oh man it's so, oh, that was that's it's good. It's there. Th my, um, I guess I could talk for a while about the particulars of my experience with this game and what I got out of it versus not. But for the sake of keeping this about the lore, I'm just gonna put myself on the line and say that I think that if they were to use any particular story beat from the main game for the DLC, it would be something to do with that fortune teller. And if this person is who we think they are, if they are privy to the secret knowledge that was only passed down by the Hyrulean royal family's matrilineal line, then that implies that they 
must be connected in some way to the only other possible source of information about what really happened, which is Ganon themselves. In my ideal space, we would find an incarnation of Ganon's intelligence walking around, and that would essentially be Ganondorf, but I know that's not going to happen. Or a Ganem. Yeah, would be a Ganem is basically Ganondorf by a different name, just not as cool. Regardless, it, I, I would like to see something more to do with that uh, fortune teller because that is an all. God, what a tired comparison. But it is very similar to the way that FromSoft handles some characters in Dark Souls, in that you learn just enough about them to get an idea of what they did and what their intentions must have been, but not anything else. I think that's cool. Is that all that we have today on The Legend of Zelda? Yes. I'm going to say, I'm going to say yes. Yes, that's all I've got. I, I could keep going, but no one wants to hear it. All right. Well, we have... Let's see. This is the 19th Zelda game? Is, yeah. Uh, is, are, are we counting, like, Link's crossbow training? No, just the... No. Oh. I don't know. Okay. Well, are we... Okay. We got it. This is a very dangerous conversation to have. What are the mainline Zelda games? The Legend of Zelda. Okay. Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link. Yes. The Legend of Zelda 3, Triforce of the Gods. Yep. The Legend of Zelda, Link's Awakening. Uh-huh. The Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time. Yep. The Legend of Zelda, Majora's Mask. I'm feeling it. The Legend of Zelda... The Oracle of Ages and the Oracle of Seasons. Mm. That counts as two. Mm. Oh, does it? The Legend of Zelda, Four Swords. The Legend of Zelda, The Wind Waker. The Legend of Zelda, Four Swords Adventures. I don't know about that one. Are you you're serious? I'm dead. It's part of the timeline. Mm-mm. 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 I got opinions. The Legend of Zelda, The Minish Cap. The Legend of Zelda, Twilight Princess. The Legend of Zelda, Phantom Hourglass. The Legend of Zelda, Spirit Tracks. The Legend of Zelda, Skyward Sword. The Legend of Zelda, A Link Between Worlds. The Legend of Zelda, Triforce Heroes. The Legend of Zelda, Breath of the Wild. Mm. Those are the games. It's a lot of games. And Breath of the Wild is the... Is the 18th title. Uh canonical title in the legend of zelda series canonical we have 17 more that we're going to explore in the future Oh dear christ in heaven oh cameron where can we find you on social media if you care to share oh um you can find me on twitter at at cam writer all one word all right and you can find me on twitter at arcane crystal and that's all we have goodbye yeah bye guys I'll have an outro. Yeah, outro. Yeah.